Welcome to this episode of the Betting Goods podcast. I'm talking to Samuel Hammond, who's a d- director of forest of poverty and welfare policy at the Niskanen Center. Uh, he previously worked as an economist for the government of Canada, specialization specializing in rural economic development, and as a graduate research fellow for the Mercator Center at George Mason University. Uh, hi, Samuel. Nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Um, you come from George Mason. Around a third, at least, of my guests have been from George Mason. What makes the place so special? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm from Canada originally, and um, it's that special uh, eccentricity of George Mason that drew me there, right? So in high school, I read Tyler Cowen. Uh, basically, every book he had written up to that point um, was fascinated by folks like Robin Hanson and Brian Kaplan, who are uh, libertarian, but they're not, they don't, they're beyond libertarian. They're they're more like rationalists who are thinking about issues from first principles and trying to work out um, how the world works without preconception. Um, and I think it's actually pretty remarkable what George Mason has done over the last couple of decades. I think Tyler Cowen has a big, big part of that and who they recruited, but it's, you know, objectively it's like a 50th tier university or some, something like that for econ. Right. But um, they punch way above their weight, partly because they think, so outside the box, and they have a great ability to identify um, sort of meta-rational thinkers. Uh, so I think that's that's what drew me to George Mason and the Mercatus Center, where, where I was a research fellow. Um, but it's a really phenomenal place. It's also um, a good example of, of, you know, I think other renaissances have always had sort of an ecosystem of thinkers that... Um, uh, that are very dynamic and sort of geographically concentrated. And that's, that's what my, my time at George Mason felt like. It was sort of like being in a ecosystem of um, in, intellectual thinkers who were, whose lines of thought were orthogonal to the normal um, axes of political debate. And that made them more, more, um, more original. Okay. You work at a think tank. I've I've understood how people who work at for-profit companies or even charities uh, get measured and I understand what their goals are. But how do you define success as in your job at the Miskanen Center? Yeah, this is a really tough uh, question to answer. Um, and I think it's a problem that plagues a lot of nonprofits think tanks, universities, hospitals, like all, all kinds of nonprofit <laughs> systems. Uh, how do you define output? How do you define productivity? And it's particularly difficult when you work at a, a, a policy-oriented think tank where, um, you know, for us, a win might be passing a law or, or developing a new um, proposal that gets adopted or influences existing proposals. And it's so difficult to know um, what works and and there's also the problem of timing where you know take something like Obamacare that everyone knows that came from a heritage foundation proposal from like the early 1990s like I didn't think when they wrote that proposal they imagined that it would become Obamacare right? um, but there's there's these these large delays and there's also uh, there's also a lot of people moving and polling and 
pushing in, in the same in different directions at the same time. So you might like be working on issue X, but there's like a dozen other people also working on issue X. And so if you do make progress on issue X, it's hard to tell whether it was your input that drove the progress or someone else's. Um, and I think that's also why a lot of nonprofits uh, and think tanks are um, really vastly inefficient. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm maybe an outlier because I, I'm employed at a nonprofit and they, you know, this is my salary. And normally when you're paid to, yeah, you know, certain to, you know, paid under a certain model, you're not, you're not supposed to question it, but um, you know, the, the United States uh, has one of the largest nonprofit sectors of any country. And it's not just, it's, it's way beyond charities at this point. It's a lot of like, you know, places like think tanks, very established think tanks that have large endowments and it's not really clear what they're doing. Right. So, um, you know, the way I measure success for myself is, is, you know, a, to, uh, to, to be very rigorous and, and sort of focused on the political science of what actually drives policy change, not to, not to think in terms of, you know, sort of the folk psychology or the folk theory of policy change. Um, to actually try to understand what works. And this is something that is core to Niskanen's founding. Um, we have a document called our Conspectus that sort of walks through some of the political science literature on social change and how it derives most in the U.S. context from um, elite networks and decision makers, not, not so much from popular opinion um, or like big movements or anything like that. Um, and so a lot of our work is targeting those networks, trying to uh, uh, facilitate, you know, what we call the legislative subsidies. So in, in also another problem in the United States is Congress is very underfunded um, and a lot of policymaking gets outsourced. And so you can have a lot of influence by basically being the one that people are outsourcing to. Uh, but to get in that position, you have to build a lot of trust and credibility um, and provide a something of genuine value. So, you know, for, for myself, we've had a number of wins that are very traceable to our efforts that make it make us a little bit unusual because we can point at things and say, hey, <laughs> uh, for an organization that, you know, that has a budget of about $6 million, we're, we've punched way above our weight. Um, but then there are other large think tanks. I'm thinking of the Brookings and the AEIs um, that uh, it's very clear what the you know, the ROI <laughs> is at those organizations. Um, and often, uh, you know, in my more cynical moments, I feel like a lot of think tank world in DC is just an excuse to, you know, host cocktail parties and spend <laughs> foundations money on, on uh, you know, triangular sandwiches. You have a unique perspective on the extent to which the median voter theorem is true. And for our listeners who want, who may not know, the median voter theorem says that, they roughly says that public policy in, in a country will match the preferences of the median voter. And when you said that mass movements or, or things of, of that sort don't, don't lead to a policy changes, doesn't that mean that the median voter theorem is wrong or, or, or at least inaccurate? Um, I don't think the, I think the median voter theorem is an important boundary condition on politics. And that's the way I, I tend to think about it. Um, you know, it's not literally true mm -hmm. that, uh, that, uh, politics is a linear left, right spectrum. And, you know, 
like the um, what's called like the the uh, Downing model and in, in, in social choice theory, where it sort of comes from a thought experiment of like a beach and there's a lemonade stand and there's there's two competing lemonade stands and um, you know in, in equilibrium they will both position slightly to the left of, and right of each other in the, at the center of the beach because that's the shortest distance people have to walk to, right. Um, you know, politics is, is way higher, higher dimensional than that. So it doesn't fit neatly into the meeting voter mm-hmm. paradigm, but it's still a useful construct for, um, for understanding some of the constraints on how far to the fringes politics can go and how there's sort of a homeostatic response that kicks in. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, I don't, I think what the, the issue of mass movements, it's not that they are never a and if never effective, obviously you can have like the Arab Spring, right? <laughs> you can have um, you can have the civil rights movement, which I think in the U.S. context is one of the reasons why um, that model of politics tends to be overrated because people people draw sort of these historical analogies with like, like take take the environmental movement, like we're going to um, basically do the same playbook as the civil rights movement on climate change. Um, but it's just not the case that if you want, you know, rigorous action on, on climate change, um, that like having a bunch of young people storm the Capitol <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, or like, you know, um, con- you know, convincing uh, a pocket, you know, a 20% of the public to become very alarmist on climate change. That doesn't actually necessarily lead to bills being passed. Right. Mm-hmm. And in fact, sometimes it can have the opposite effect. Um, particularly under conditions of negative polarization where, you know, Republicans in Congress will pass legislation um, that is proactive on climate change when no one's paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when something becomes a big issue, like one of the words, like if, if, if Barack Obama really cared about health care, he almost shouldn't have made it his signature policy because it polarized the parties mm-hmm. on the topic. Um, and the same is true in a lot of areas where often the, if you really care about an issue, you don't want it to become a big public concern because then things polarize and become very, um, you, you end up hitting impasses because it becomes more salient when you can get a lot done sort of behind the scenes through brokering and bargaining with different decision makers. Um, you're in a unique perspective here. What's the most surprising thing about these inner circles? Are they are they actually rational decision makers like they portray themselves, or do they have systematic biases that, in theory, a smart uh, someone could? I, I I wanted to use the word exploit, but I can't find a better word for it, so I'll stick with exploit. This the same way um, quantitative. Um, finance researchers look for biases in, in investors. Can somebody do that with politicians or uh, has that been arbitraged out all, all, already? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, uh, exploit and arbitrage are two good words for it because those are things that are sort of missing in the think tank ecosystem and really politics in general. Um, there's, there's huge, you know, there's thousand dollar bills on the table all over the place. And um and one of the reasons they don't get picked up, you know, the, the, the $100 bill on the sidewalk is because there's really no, 
there's no market mechanism. <laughs> there's right. no, there's no profit or loss. I mean, that's why they're called nonprofits, right? <laughs> um, and and often the the game that particular organizations are playing is you know amping up red team versus blue team, or um, you know I don't want to throw shade on on the Cato Institute, but you know I, I have a lot of friends who work there. But you know one of one of the, one of them told me that um, you know the, if you looked at it objectively, what they what they exist for is for rich people to have an opportunity to feel like they're smart and for smart people to have an opportunity <laughs> to feel like they're rich. Um, so it's not, these organizations aren't, there's nothing checking them. There's nothing, uh, there's no performance pay if you get, if you pass a, <laughs> a bill. Um, and, then, and then at the same time, there's the veneer of ideology and politics that creates huge exploitable regions of, of opportunity if, if you're able to detach yourself from that and sort of step outside the red team, blue team game um, and, and not be in any particular in-group. Um, but that's really difficult. Like that you can do that if you're, you know, Jim Simons and running a hedge fund because there are very clear metrics and you'll outcompete your competitors and be proven right. Um, but there's really within DC, there's really nothing pushing you that direction. Uh, and if anything, you can even be punished for it because you've become uh, a pariah or you become undefinable and people don't know what team you're on. Um, so it's a very difficult balancing act. Okay. Um, moving more on to your role at this current center, uh, you wrote about how Judy Sheldon's call for a new Bretton Woods would, you know, it would definitely be the, the opposite of what pro-worker uh, politicians would would want. But then wouldn't that mean that, uh, why does this dichotomy exist where almost everybody gets, everybody who calls themselves pro-worker gets monetary policy wrong, except for maybe one or two politicians. I would count uh, AOC as the only one, despite disagreements I may have with her, who understands monetary policy better than uh, most other uh, most other members of Congress. It's an important thing. Clearly, somebody should have studied it, right? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, macro, it's another example of um, an area, a subject matter where there are very weak feedback mechanisms if you have bad, incorrect views, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and so it's, 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 it's not clear what actually uh, pushes people to have the correct views. And in fact, it's just very complicated and you can spend a, a lifetime studying whatever the Great Depression or stagflation and come away with different theories and opinions because it's not um, nothing like a controlled experiment. Um, that said, you know, I do think there has been a, a broader degradation of the quality of American governance over the last 30, 40 years. And part of that has been sort of a forgetting of, of economic principles. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of actually the, the kind of Bretton Woods model. Um, but when people like Judy Shelton talk about Bretton Woods, they are getting it totally, they're getting the, you know, in the classic monetary trilemma, they're getting, uh, they're, they're getting it totally backwards, right? <laughs> you know, she basically wants a, um, a Eurozone style policy for the world, right? right. And that hasn't right. worked and out so well for anybody who's tried it. Right. 
and it's you know fi that's fixing exchange rates between countries um, and having very aggressive price stability, which ends up meaning you have large capital imbalances um, and out outflows from poor from lower, lower productivity regions to to higher productivity regions, as happened with the the periphery and flowing into Germany. Um, and that's not what the Bretton Woods model was. The Bretton Woods model was more one of um, capital controls and done in a way that allowed countries to have sort of embedded discretion over their nation's fiscal and monetary policies. Um, so it's a very different model. It's one that I think is in theory preferable because it grants sort of maximum popular sovereignty to countries to design programs and policies to reflect the, the public's will. Um, it just tends to be incredibly unstable because capital controls are hard to enforce and becoming you know, almost impossible to enforce in this generation due to um, the, you know, the, the strength of global finance and you know, new technologies like crypto, you know, one of their primary use cases is to evade capital controls. <laughs> so I've, um, you know, I, th I think on the margin, I would like to see the United States adopt, um, say, a, a, a foreign investment tax. Um, you know, you could even have this something a little bit more regionally specific in, in Canada. Uh, in British Columbia, they began taxing um, foreign uh, property owners who just would, you know, buy a condo and not live in it. Yeah. Um, just to have as an asset, and that and that's uh, you know that that phenomena of people just buying you know rich people from China or Saudi Arabia or whatever buying up properties that they don't live in and pushing up real estate prices. That's a function of massive capital imbalances, and they have to be adjusted somehow. And if they're not adjusted through uh, more explicit capital controls and investment provisions, then they're going to work their way into housing bubbles, into other um, kind of financialization. Um, and in the case of the United States, the, you know, rapid deindustrialization and things like that. And none of that is very good. Okay. I take it that your trade wars are class wars fan. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I, yeah. I, I love Michael Pettis and, and Matt Klein. When, um, Okay, that, so that reminds me of a question I've been thinking of, 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 of asking. When people say that they want to influence public policy, should they start working out on a specific issue? Like uh, somebody trying to go on one specific re uh, regulation on, for example, environmental um, review, or should their goal be to try to change the overt window of acceptable policies because what i see is miscon does a mixture of both you work on uh, specific issues also but you have these long there's this exceptional piece on why ideology is not always good which i still cite to friends even to this day so um what's your take on that yeah that, that piece was um the alternative to ideology which is our we, we used to be branded as libertarian because we're a lot a lot of us were former libertarians um, but as we became more former and less libertarian, <laughs> it became less of an <laughs> apt description. So our president, Jerry Taylor, wrote this fantastic essay um, called The Alternative to Ideology, uh, where, you know, there's sort of two parts to it. One was, uh, you know, what it means to be a moderate, and mm -hmm. that, that's what we call ourselves now, is 
really a kind of pluralist, somebody who recognizes that values like equality, liberty, um, equity, uh, social order, uh, communitarian values, um, each one of those has their place. And uh, if you isolate one of those values, you just you take liberty as the sole issue mm-hmm. or equality as the sole issue, and you, you end up developing pathologies. You pathologize your, your ideology um, to the, de- the detriment of all the other values that, uh, that uh, you know, on the margin are important too. Um, so, so that was the first part of the piece. The second part of the piece is to say that the other problem with ideology is it, it gives you simple answers to, to complex issues. It becomes a kind of recipe or formula. Um, so if, you know, if you're a libertarian, you say, well, obviously it's because the government is bad. So we just got to cut that program or cut the taxes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're a progressive, it's because we haven't done enough to elim- eliminate dispar- disparate impact and promote equal opportunity. Um, and those simple formulas are, are fed by confirmation bias and beyond being too myopic and too narrow, they also end up leading you into false beliefs. And so a big part of being a moderate and a, and a pluralist is also being sort of having metacognition about your own biases and, um, and trying to take different perspectives seriously. Um, so I wouldn't call that moving the Overton window. I would say that was more just a statement of where we stand on stuff and what our outlook is. Um, I think I think attempts to move the Overton window tend to be, it's a very overrated concept. You know, if you want to reform education, uh, you know, having someone write a paper saying we should abolish public education <laughs> doesn't actually help people trying to bring school choice, right? <laughs> it doesn't, it's right. not like... It's not like it's a bargaining table where, oh, okay, our choices are school choice or we abolish it altogether. So, okay, we'll take this as the more moderate thing. Um, no, uh, what, what, you know, what, what I think, what I would advise is really depends on the person's situation. At a think tank, I think it pays to put, you know, 50% of your time into, um, you know, building relationships with key decision makers being a reliable source of information, expertise, and advice on any manner, all manner of issues. So that requires being a generalist to some extent, um, and then using the rest of your time to uh, develop bigger ideas. Not because they are going to move the Overton window, but because they uh, sort of represent a kind of a kind of content marketing, a kind of a kind of way of messaging. This, you know, we're thinking outside the box. These, this is how we approach these issues. And maybe you write some paper about how, you know, you would reform the healthcare system from the bottom up. It's not never going to happen, but it will. It piques interest and it shows that you're, you, you have the background to think through these issues. And so, when there is a healthcare reform and it's something more marginal, they'll come and talk to you for for your ideas. Um, but that's if you're at a think tank. If you're just starting out. Um, you know, I would say special in policy, special over specializing is uh, a danger. Um, that's why I think like becoming an economist is probably still. You know, Noah Smith has a few pieces on why the econ PhD is still the best PhD. I, I think it really is partly because the the toolkit that you receive in economics 
is general enough and provides a sort of conceptual framework for thinking about all kinds of issues. Um, and so, you know, I used to work on tech policy and now I work on anti-poverty policy. And that was a total, you know, on the, on the surface level, that's a total flip. And the people that my colleagues in, in poverty policy don't know the first thing about tech policy, <laughs> right? But for me, it didn't, for me, it didn't feel, um, it didn't feel like that big of a transition because it, the, th the through line is I, I've, I've just been thinking like a, a developmental economist the entire time. <laughs> um, do you think that some people claim that that economics isn't very useful for public policy because it gives you the wrong mindset of trying to optimize everything all the time? Do you think that we should, you know, the, the standard argument goes that up till the late 60s or 70s, Washington was run by lawyers and um and uh, old money and, and, and people from a um, variety of elite backgrounds. But now the uh, policy making sphere has changed that the only people who make policies are economists. Do you think that's good or bad? I, I question the premise. Um, I think, especially in, in the United States, the US is a country run by lawyers. You know, mm -hmm. we are effectively governed by um, uh, nine jurists who decide what the law is. And, uh, you know, all the investment on the left and the right, on the right, it's the federal society, the sort of the law and econ movements, the, the uh, you know, textualist, constitutionalist stuff. Um, on the left, there was a, the liberal legal, legal network and um, public interest law firms, trial lawyers, so civil rights law, uh, human rights law. The U.S. is is overrun with lawyers uh, to the point where there's not enough law firms to absorb them, so they go into public policy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think it would be, I would much rather the FDA or the CDC have have fewer epidemiologists and more economists. I think they would have done a much better job. Um, fewer lawyers too, because lawyers are always looking up for liability and for risk and um, yeah. and don't too much have, due process. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I think there was a period when economists did have a lot of influence. Um, I'm thinking, you know, you know, Marty Feldstein and the Nixon administration, uh, aspects of the Reagan administration, part of the, the Clinton administration. But really, they've always been, their influence has been exaggerated to a large extent. Um, and uh, and the caricature of economics is so focused on sort of impossible to achieve optima, uh, I think is also a, a false caricature. I think you could, you could say that of like the Paul Samuelsons of the world um, who, who took a very sort of like social welfare planner view of market failure and stuff like that. But if you're if you're an economist that has a bit of understanding of public choice and political economy and the kind of the kind of constraints and and historical contexts that lead, you know, every policy to be second best at best, mm -hmm. um, then actually it pays to be an economist because the whole point about econ is, uh, and like the the fundamental insight of the marginal revolution was. Um, you know, find the interior solution, right? right. Um, 
And, and that means not maximizing any one thing. Uh, often it means trying to balance different things, which goes again to mo what moderation means. Um, but in the context of policy choice and social choice and, and designing, designing reforms, there's always going to be trade-offs. And that's where economists excel, trying to understand what those trade-offs are, uh, where you can make the impact on the margin, um, what issues are relatively neglected. Uh, and, you know, I would love for, for maybe a quarter of America's lawyers to, if I could go in a time machine to instead major in economics, and I think the country would probably be better off. I think the, the sort of analogy you're looking for is I know conservative groups pay judges to attend these sessions on antitrust and whatever. And I've heard it's big deal that, but for lawyers to, to attend for, for economics would be a good investment. Yeah. I mean, so antitrust is, is a, a good example where I think e economists have had a lot of influence in, um, you know, developing consumer welfare standard and how to think about industrial organization. And that ended up having an influence on a lot of uh, conservative legal movement. Um, but that, but I, think it, I think it's an example of where lawyers were taking their lead from economists rather than the other way around. Okay, yeah. Um, you're famous on Twitter. How do you think econ Twitter and the entire- I'm not famous on Twitter. You're, you're, you're Maybe to you, but, uh, you're, you're, okay. you're famous enough that when, that if you tweeted something, that when you tweet something, it, it gets out to a good number of people. Okay, I, I got to know you through Twitter accounts. So consider this one aspect of your fame. But how do you think that has changed uh, the way policy is made in, in Washington? Is it actually true that that has an impact or uh, are we still in the old days of um, having elite insider circles? Uh, I think I, I've noticed a definite, definite change. I mean, I wouldn't be here if not for Twitter um, because, you know, it's sort of doing something just like you did by reaching out to me. That's how I really broke into the social networks that, enabled me to move to DC from where I was, which, you know, I was born in a rural part of Nova Scotia and went to school in Ottawa. Uh, no, you know, other than coming down to, when I, as a kid to visit like Disneyland, I never really set foot in the United States other than, you know, for random trips uh, until 2014. <laughs> um, so it's really, Twitter has been incredibly useful for breaking into social networks and also for identifying hidden talent that wouldn't otherwise rise up because so much of politics is nepotistic and incestuous. Um, you know, in this administration, it's remarkable how many people say that got appointments at OMB were from a particular subset of econ Twitter, right? And- How many and I think, appointments I think didn't happen because of Twitter that there? Right. Well, yeah. So Twitter has had both a, a, a productive and counterproductive. I think the, on the productive side, it's, it's helped um, reveal hidden talent. It's made it easier to get into um, these networks on the basis of, you know, you're a pseudonymous person. You, 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 that you, you might as well be a 14 year old. <laughs> no one really knows who you are, but if you <laughs> write something insightful, uh, people notice and you can build a following. Um, so on that level, it's been really good. It's been really good for uh, sort of as an extension of the blogosphere. Um, 
you know, I really got into econ heavily in macro in particular after the 2008 Great Recession, reading like Scott Sumner and, um, and Uneasy Money and uh, Worthwhile Canadian Initiative and these, and these like macro blogs that were trying to process the great financial crisis in real time, um, it, you know, rapidly accelerating the kind of dialogues and dialectics that could take place. Uh, and at, at, you know, during those years, if you weren't reading the blogs and, and, and later reading Twitter, you were missing out on most of the most interesting and insightful analyses. Um, and I think that the, blog, the blogs have sort of diminished but and, and moved onto Twitter. So that remains the case. Um, on the counterproductive side, I think like everything on Twitter, you, you can, it's easy to um, develop misperceptions of what is the consensus because mm-hmm. you're within a, within a relatively self-selecting group of people. And, you know, what is, what is the consensus opinion on fiscal policy, you say on econ Twitter, uh, may not reflect the broader economic consensus. Um, and so you have to be wary that, uh, like any, like any organization, there, there is herd mentality and group bias, um, and selection effects that can distort your perception of, of, you know, what people actually think you you see that across the board, like, you know, Kamala Harris probably suffered in her primary campaign because she thought that progressives on Twitter reflected, you know, the democratic consensus, right. But it's not, it was not the case. Um, you know, far left Twitter is its own thing and econ Twitter is its own thing. Um, and so you have, you have to always put those things in context. Yeah. I think I, I, something I read somewhere was that Joe Biden's message to his uh, social media team was don't take anything they say on that goddamn website seriously. <laughs> and I would, <laughs> I would, I would, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You, you said you grew up in a, in a small town. How does that, how does your background influence the way you uh, do your research on, 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 on economics in, in, in general, but the work you're doing now on uh, welfare policy? Um, I don't think there's a, a direct influence. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with the Tyler Cowen-ism that everyone's a regional thinker. So I do think that, you know, there are, you know, there's definitely a, a Canadian inflection to the way I think, um, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily come from like a particular lived experience. Like I had, my mom was a family lawyer. My dad drove a, was a civil servant driving a, a, a cable ferry, mm-hmm. relatively um, middle-class and, you know, the town I grew up, the county was, I think 30,000 30, people. So very, very small town. Um, and one, one thing that I think is true uh, of Canada is that our more rural communities um, have fared much better than uh, they have in the United States, and so I've that's influenced you know that that's influenced me to try to understand why, say you know Windsor, Ontario, uh, is significant significantly nicer than Detroit, <laughs> right? um, on on different dimensions, or or why uh, Niagara, Ontario, is a lot better than the Niagara. Uh, part of uh, the U.S. side of Niagara. <laughs> right. okay, I'm um, okay. I'm uh, interested. Why is Niagara, 
Ontario better? I, I, it's a, it's a million dollar question. Like, I don't know, really. I think there's a lot of factors at play. I think, um, uh, Canadian labor law, um, uh, equal equalization payments to make sure that, uh, when have not provinces have their resources to supply public, basic public goods. So they don't sort of enter into vicious cycles of decline. Um, a, you know, Canada has a very, strong emphasis on kind of supporting and forming a robust middle class. And I think a lot of the trends in the United States can be summarized as, you know, no one single policy decision, but, but a, a, a collection of policy decisions that have had the effect of hollowing out the middle and creating more sort of barbell shaped outcomes. Um, and it'd be great if there was a, a quick fix, but I think it's part of a bigger sort of regime difference. And, it, and it's a really interesting question to study because other, you know, objectively Canada and the United States are broadly similar. We're both sort of Anglo style liberal mm -hmm. economies. Um, you know, Canada has universal health care but uh, you know our labor market institutions aren't that different. Um, so it's, it's an interesting case study in how uh, the details matter and, and trying to pick apart what those details are to understand why the outcomes have diverged is an interesting question that I don't have a final, final answer to. Okay. Um, my last question to you is, what's your most out of consensus opinion among your Peers. I don't mean out of consensus <laughs> across the, the U.S. political spectrum, but among your direct peers, what's one thing you, you disagree with them the most? Oh, the, the problem with that is to try to pick one because, <laughs> like, <laughs> my, you know, I, 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 my peers began as a lot of libertarians and my outer perspective view was that, um, you know, a large social, insur social insurance systems and big government are not are not necessarily inimical to economic freedom and, and in many cases can promote and complement free markets. Uh, so that was an out of the, out of the box perspective. Um, you know, uh, the, I, I am still broadly libertarian on a lot of issues, but I don't share the enthusiasm for the second amendment that a lot of Americans do. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I've never uh, understood either. And probably my biggest single thing that sets me apart from just Americans in general is, uh, you know, left and right have a bit of a fetish for, for the constitution and a written constitution. And I'm more of a, uh, British type, you know, yeah. You know, a loyal, I'm still a loyalist, <laughs> you know, I like to say that like, <laughs> People say America's original sin was slavery, but really it was independence um, because it's what enabled <laughs> slavery. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if to, they to, became independent later, they would have followed Britain's course, which did like some 30 years before. Right. And, and I think one of the down, one of the, you know, having a Bill of Rights is awesome, obviously. Um, but what I think it does is create a false impression that your rights are secured by dint of this piece of paper, by mm. the fact that they're explicitly enumerated. When in fact, um, any constitution written 
or unwritten is still majority unwritten because it's embedded in norm, norms, institutional practices, uh, understandings, um, and uh, and so focusing on the written part of the Constitution can end up making it more brittle because you end up underinvesting in all those unwritten subterranean parts that that are what actually breathe life into the Constitution, um, and so that's why you know. You know, I would, I would, I wish the United Kingdom had a stronger, uh, stronger free speech protections, for instance. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think Americans exaggerate how less free other countries are relative <laughs> to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and they and they sort of have this impression that without you know explicitly saying you you can say you can shout fire in a crowded theater and 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 um, you know without making those rights explicit, many countries still have as good or comparable or even better protections of those civil liberties in the United States. And in some ways they're more robust because they're embedded within a, within a context of norms and unwritten understandings. And you're not going to have like a Supreme Court that you know says, oh, we're going to read the text in its original textual meaning um, and then just like, you know, s s completely change the orientation of the law <laughs> overnight, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and even if you have those guarantees, that there is no little guarantee of it. Consider the fact that both China and the Soviet Union ha had a guarantee for free speech. It didn't. It didn't work out so well for them. So yeah, that was yeah, totally. Yeah. So yeah, and and it's it, and that's I think a bigger. So one of the things that Scanning will be doing next is this um, sort of big. Uh, focus on state capacity, we're calling it like state capacity project, thinking about the, um, you know, state capacity broadly defined, you know, the ability for a government to, you know, execute and to uh, make good on democratic demands, because uh, you can't just will a policy into existence that you need the, the, so you need the systems, the social technologies, the institutional structures, the good government um, to do it, to actually bring those things into reality. And the United States has, the public administration in the United States is totally broken. Um, and I think it's, it's a huge problem. And it's one that is kind of ill-defined on the left and the right, because, you know, the right wants to talk about the deep state and, um, uh, and all this, all this stuff. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, in many ways, like Canada, benefits from having a expert civil service that is apolitical uh, and permanent. And, you know, you have like the shadow secretary to, uh, so when you have a leader, you know, in the ministry of finance, they don't have to, you know, they're not the ones like running the finance ministry, but they have a, a, a point person that basically does it for them. Um, right. And because they've been there for 30 years, they know how the system works. Um, you know, the U.S. could use a lot more of that and a lot more and, and a lot less um, of this sort of procedural fetish. But that where, means that uh, changes would be a lot harder in Canada, right? If you have the sort of institutional thought, wouldn't that mean that the bureaucrats just slow down or uh, reduce the speed of change when a new administration comes? No, I think it depends on the structure of administration. So, um you know, in the in the U.S., there's I think been 
a substitution of leadership for procedure where, you know, the FDA commissioner is not really in charge of the FDA, mm. right? It's, it's been put on rails, so to speak. And uh, if you need to break the rules to accelerate a drug because there's a global pan- a pandemic, right? <laughs> it becomes very difficult because all that power has been abdicated um, and uh, been um, sort of in- embedded in these Byzantine systems and processes. Um, that, 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 comes, that actually comes from weak, I, I think of that more as a, a form of, uh, a symptom of weak government in some ways. Um, and certainly low trust government because the less, you know, bringing in rules and process is a substitute for, for trust in some ways. Um, if you look at like science policy, you know, DARPA is incredibly effective because they find the best people and they in- invest a lot of trust in those people to make strategic investments in breakthrough technologies. Whereas, you know, the NIH uh, has a bunch of sort of middling <laughs> people and, and yeah. who they don't it's trust. Supposedly and, and, takes and, like more than half the research time is on writing the grants. Right, right. And that's a symptom of, of lack of trust because, you know, we're going to give you whatever, a few hundred thousand dollars for your research program, but you, we're going to make you like, you know, track every single dollar you spend and restrict how you spend it. And if you break any of these rules, we're going to cut you off. Um, and the whole thing is sort of run on algor- algorithms uh, and process where there's no one really in charge. There's these competitive grants and so forth. Like that's all, that's all I think a symptom of weak government. Um, and in the Canadian context, like the proof is in the pudding under, under, um, under Jean Chrétien, uh, you know, he famously reduced the, the federal government by 30%. Um, and, you know, paradoxically, it was actually the high trust Canadians have in government that enabled him to downsize government. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whereas when you're, the United States has sort of fallen into this low trust equilibrium where the main outcome is stasis and this kind of like metastable equilibrium where all the forces are pulling and pushing in, in this weird kind of balance and nothing ever gets done. On that, on that pessimistic note, I'm going to stop it because <laughs> I'm also going to, going to say something bad. You're going to say something bad. So, okay, that's the end of it. But thanks for coming. You, you, the low trust equilibrium thing isn't something I had actually considered. But now that I think of it, it's a very, very good model for explaining uh, stasis and, and, and why the regulatory agencies in the US are designed that way. Because I can't think of any other country where the FTC works that way where you know you the, the president appoints them but he he can't remove them and they have to report to congress and it's 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 a good mental model and yeah thank you so yeah, much for coming. I, I, I would say a good a good uh short book on this is jonathan Rauch's uh political realism mm-hmm. it's a it's a free ebook i think it's only 50 pages it, it most of it deals with sort of um the decline of the party system and, and open primaries and the negative consequences that it's had, but, but also a lot of it deals with the sort of overshooting of uh, progressive slash populist slash libertarian uh, civil service reforms that were designed, you know, in early on were designed to say like, get rid of the spoil system and right. like outright patronage, right? And so that was good not to have like outright patronage, um, but over time it's kind of overshot. And now 
a lot of these transparency rules and process um, uh, don't really deliver any, that they don't make government better or more effective. They just end up uh, hamstringing it. Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. I, you're my 13th or 14th guest by memory. And I get to 113, I'm going to call you back and, and we're going to talk a lot more about this. All right. Be happy to. Bye.